Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. It's the 24th of April and the year is 2021. I want to get started right away without too much introduction because we have a lot of material to cover. Um, and I'm probably going to have to do two or three more of these lectures because I've been writing them, realizing there's a lot of prolegomena before we get into the final analysis of the human aging uh, and then the associated morbidity and mortality. So first off, let me just give you the title of the talk today. It's the recombination activating gene or the RAG system. And I'm describing it as a potential candidate in age-associated morbidity and mortality. Subtitle of this talk can also be, the central nervous system and the immune system are linked to recombination. The recombination occurs specifically associated with T cell receptors and the immunoglobulin series in B cells. But as we'll see, it expands out into other cell lineages that are not necessarily recognized as immune cell lineages, although the microglia um, is a case in point as well. But linked to recombination in the epigenome. Again, this is Authentic Biochemistry, and my name is Dan Guerra. So <clears throat> before I give you a uh, another deep discussion of the RAG system, remember that the antigen-specific nature of T-cell responses need, require, I guess you could say, an antigen-specific and a clonally restricted receptor on the surface of T lymphocytes. And this is indeed the case. So we have a T cell receptor, which differs from the B cell antigen binding receptor in many ways. T cell receptor, first off, is membrane bound, so it doesn't really generate a soluble form. It doesn't get secreted. So we have to talk about as a membrane-bound microenvironment, right? Second thing about the T-cell receptor is that the antigen-binding interaction of T-cells and therefore their receptor um, is weaker than that of antibodies. So the binding affinity is weaker. And so that means it requires, um, it, it, at least initially, it required a more sensitive assay to determine what that interaction was, right? Because it wasn't easy to find whatever the T cell receptor bound to because that complex fell apart. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is the T cell receptors are specific, not for the antigen alone, but for another really important protein complex. And this is, of course, the major histocompatibility complex of so the H. MHC, excuse me. So all these properties kind of preclude an easy purification of T cell receptors. So it took a long time to do it, but ultimately it did, right? I told you that the genomic organization of T cell receptor is actually a, a rather large gene family with a lot of diversity because recombination is going to generate all of the um, avidity and all the diversity of the T-cell receptor to be able to deal with antigen presentation from professional antigen-presenting cells, such as dendritic cells uh, that are in circulation. So I want you to keep that in mind. So, okay, so the RAG system, remember, is involved in the recombination of gene segments called the VDJ 
which will ultimately generate the T-cell receptor, okay? And so what I'm giving you is a very deep understanding of how the immune system works at the level of acquired immunity, but at the same time, I'm trying to convince you that it is at least a reasonable uh, hypothetical deduction that the RAG proteins themselves, remember these are the, uh, this is where recombination occurs for these segments that may end up making a protein called the T-cell receptor, can play a major role in, first of all, the sculpting of the entire immune system itself and recognition of uh, non-self and, and self so that there's a discrimination and therefore a lack of autoimmune disease, which sometimes does go awry, particularly in the aging population. But also that these recombinases, these RAGs, these RAG recombinases are found outside of the immune cell lineage. And particularly they're found in cells in the central nervous system. So outside the, the immune system, you would have to then bracket off also the microglia, which are part of the CNS. But they are the recombinases are in the microglia, but they may also be working within neurons. And because you have recombination, that means that you're getting a rearrangement, not just of segments that will make up uh, transcripts that can be translated into polypeptides that are unique and therefore non-conforming to specific um, DNA sequences that are inherited because the recombination itself will modify that. But also this opens up the whole array of epigenomes that can be generated within neurons and therefore ultimately lead to, yeah, such things as uh, neurodegeneration or oncogenesis when controlling mechanisms are no longer functioning. And those controlling mechanisms break down during the aging process. Right, so that's how we got here. So RAG1 localization for the VDJ recombination. Let me tell you something about it. This comes from a paper that was published in Frontiers in Immunology in 2014. Yes, I will put it in the show notes. So first of all, remember that the RAG protein, there's two of them, there's RAG1 and 2. RAG1 has to be imported to the nucleus where it functions, right? Because that's where recombination is going to occur. Uh, it has to recombine DNA. And it moves through the nuclear pores um, upon binding to a protein called KPNA2. And that has a nuclear localization signal or an NLS signal. And it's located in what's called the core region of that protein. So RAG1 is retained within the nuclear lamina by binding KPNA1 upstream of what's called its ring domain. So RAG1 accumulation in the nuclear lamina promotes RAG1-dependent ubiquitinylation of that KPNA1 protein in the presence of another set of proteins called the E2 uh, UBCH2 RAD6. Now that allows for, indeed, a de degradation of the KPNA1 by the 26S proteasome so re you remove now the trafficking protein that brought RAG1 into the nucleus, into the lamina of the nucleus. But also this same 
event, this ubiquitinylation, will then allow for the release of RAG1 into the nucleus. So the RAG1 now is capable of E3 ubiquitin ligase activity through that ring domain in the presence of a panel of E2 ubiquitin conjugating enzymes. So whereas the E2 UBCH3 promotes auto-ubiquitinylation of the RAG1 for ultimate proteolytic degradation, the interaction with E2 UBCH5A actually empowers the RAG1 to bind with another protein called VPRBP. That then binds to the VDCR complex to recruit its E3 ligase activity. Now, that function is possibly involved in repairing DNA breaks, because after all this, we have recombination repair, right? Uh, and, but also, that same phenomena causes the VDJ recombination. So the E2 UBCH2 allows RAG1 to recognize actively transcribed DNA. And of course, it's going to be subject to DNA cleavage by core RAG1 binding and ubiquitinating histone H3, specifically the acid, the acetyl acetylated H3 histone on the lysine residue. So that actually tags the DNA region for repair and for recombination by the mechanism known as non-homologous end joining. And of course, it's a protein called an HEJ factor that facilitates that process. Now, you have RAG1, RAG2. Both RAG proteins can be truncated to their enzymatically active core region. What I was just sort of going over with RAG1. So you generate functional and structural domains in both the core and the non-core. So the RAG1 core region, which actually our amino acids 384 to about 1008, now that's the mouse protein, not the human, but similar structures in the human, contains several DNA binding, do binding domains. The, the RAG protein has to bind DNA, of course. And the region that makes contacts with the recombination signal sequence, which is the RSS I talked about last time we had our lecture, the nonomer binding domain, or NBD, extends far away from the rest of the core of the flexible hinge of the polypeptide, while the heptamer, the seven nucleotide sequence contacts, are made by residues located in the multiple more carboxy portions or of the terminal region of the RAG1 core. So RAG1 core also contains three critical acidic residues, I won't mention them right now, but we can look. We can discuss them later. Uh, and they coordinate magnesium ions in the active site, which harbors a structural zinc atom that actually is coordinated by an amino acid motif. So the non-core portions of RAG1 enhance that exact VDJ recombination necessary for the T cell receptor synthesis uh, and also for immunoglobulins and B cells. Plus, they have an E3 ubiquitin ligase activity, which I just mentioned to you, and I want to uh, describe in more detail that it is contained within a somewhat unusually structured ring zinc finger domain. And all that plays a key role in the stability of the RAG1 protein, because you need RAG1 to dimerize 
to mediate the interactions with ubiquitin ligase complex. And you have to have that, of course, associated with the comp with the components of the non-homologous end joining pathway I've been mentioning to you. Core regions of RAG2, which are in the amino terminus of that protein, up to about 352 amino acid. Um, that is a single domain, consists of six bladed beta propeller structures, and those interact with the RAG1 protein and with the coding segment of DNA that is flanking that heptamer region, again, of that RSS, okay? Remember, that's the signal sequence, right? All right, that's the recognition sequence. So you're starting to get the complexity here, but I want you to get the complexity so that you realize that any mutations or modifications of this highly orchestrated recombination mechanism, either in T lymphocytes, thus generating potential um, hypoimmune or hyperimmune responses when those uh, control mechanisms are lost because of those mutations, or if there's a change in a recombination itself because of epigenetic events which alter that recombination, uh, prioritizing, and then rearrangement of segments of the T cell receptor or indeed of other DNA that is substrate for the this uh, RAG1, RAG2 recombinase complex, you're going to end up with errors in the regulation of these pathways. And since these pathways are canonical and recognized throughout early brain development and then maintaining neuronal and glial interactions throughout the lifespan of the human central nervous system, you can understand that any modifications of this are going to lead to degradation pathways or, again, oncogenic potential events in the CNS, including uh, directly in those portions, those nuclei of the brain, uh, which are recognized to be particularly vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, prefrontal dementia, etc. And remember also that any kind of ischemia or damage the central nervous system that occurs throughout life can also induce repair. And if that repair goes uh, awry for some reason because of this recombination event not going exactly as it's supposed to, then you can lead to the potential for degradation of the CNS. And again, this is all uh, becoming more common as the central nervous system ages because of such things as the telomere lengths being degenerating, as well as because of the increase in reactive oxygen and lack of removal of the reactive oxygen because of alterations in um, those genes which regulate the utilization of ascorbic acid to coferol and NADPH and glutathione, for example which are all going to work in the antioxidant level, right? So to get back to this RAG, the non-core region of the RAG2 consists, of course, of a flexible, and we talked about this last time in lecture, uh, flexible acidic amino acid linker, and that's followed by a PhD homeodomain, and that mediates the interaction between RAG2 and the open chromatin because of chromatin remodeling through direct binding of the N-terminal tail of the histone 3, when lysine 4 is trimethylated. So you need a 
trimethylation of lysine 4 on histone, in histone 3 in the chromatin for the RAG2 complex to form its structural domain so that recombination events occur. So the distal carb carboxy terminus of the RAG2 also contains a nuclear localization sequence uh, as well as a residue, particularly a tyrosine residue in, in the mouse protein uh, that when phosphorylated by a cyclodependent kinase, a CDK, targets that protein ultimately for degradation by the proteasome. So these recombinases, they are hauled into the nucleus. They go through this complex marriage of interactions between RAG1, RAG2, making a heterotetramer. They bind to specific RSSs, recombination sequence sequences, in specific domains of the chromatin, usually in enhancer promoter regions, and also throughout um, intron-exon junctions of certain genes, particularly the VDJ, when we're talking about T lymphocytes and in B lymphocytes. Um, and that when this occurs, you also have with it a built-in degradation pathway so that the recombinase itself can be proteolytically destroyed, degraded, so that it doesn't continue to function as a recombinase when that recombinase uh, activity mechanism is indeed no longer needed. Right. So also remember that RAG1 appears to contain all the domains necessary to bind and cleave the RSS. This is yet another formation of a complex, which it, it gives you this plenum of levels of uh, activity and structural functional inter interactions, which are result ultimately as the RAG system, right? Right. Okay. Now, Paper published in the Frontiers of Cell Developmental Biology. I want to talk about now. So now this is going to give us a larger picture of this whole story. There is a neutral sphingomyelinase called NSM2. Remember, sphingomyelinase will take preformed sphingomyelin and form ceramide and phosphonocholine. That's the product of that enzymatic reaction. And remember, ceramide can function as a member of a lipid raft domain, along with cholesterol and other phospholipids, to move um, and transport from the Golgi, actually starting at the ER through the Golgi to the plasma membrane, clustering of certain receptors, including, for example, the T cell receptor to the surface of, say, an activating and, act and then functioning uh, T cell. Okay. So, nutrisphingomyelinase 2 is a well studied enzyme. And again, it, what it does is give us sphingomyelin, which is part of the uh, myelinated sheath, right, of axons in the central nervous system, generating the saltation movement of the action potentials across those uh, neuronal, axonal um, uh, networks, that this same enzyme is going to produce then these very bioactive lipids. So subsequent to the phosphorylation of the sphingomyelinase, there is actually a conformational change to the, to the protein, which is what you suggest after uh, any kind of covalent modification. That renders it available to bind to the phospholipid and, and membrane-associated phospholipid thus fully activating the enzyme where it is abundantly expressed in the immune cell lineages and the central nervous system. 
the formal cationic amino terminus, uh, the amino portion, excuse me, of phosphatidylserine is actually the bridge to that anionic phosphate that you have added to the sphingomyelinase. Okay, so you have this NSM2 uh, is involved in cytokine by that I mean interleukin one beta TNF alpha and interferon gamma. Remember these pro-inflammatory cytokines. We're going to be talking about them again soon. Um, NSM2 is involved in the, the, the cytokine production, those pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is induced upon uh, activation and thus stimulates inflammation that is the result of bacterial infections. So the NSM activation after antibody ligation to the C cell receptor is an established canonical feature of this pathway. In fact, NSM2 deficient mice submit to embryonic lethality, dwarfism, and fragile bones. Now, why am I talking about the sphingomonas? I'm now bringing in, because it's authentic biochemistry, the complete plenum of interactions. We've been talking about T-cell receptors, about recombination. We're talking about the central nervous system. Now, we can talk about that, and we can give you the entire um, floor description of it, like I've been doing for the last couple of lectures. But it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening with the interaction of multiple um, interacting protein, nucleic acid, carbohydrate, and most abundantly and predominantly lipid domains within that tissue system, okay? And now we're talking about the lipid portion, the sphingolipid, okay? So if you get a deficiency in that neutral sphingomyelinase, you have embryonic lethality. So that tells you something about the early stages of central nervous system development, right? Without that NSM, you don't get it. You get embryonic lethality. So these results um, in, are inhibited through a, 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 a through a thorough investigation um, a, through the NSM ablation in the immune response. Right. So the immune response is associated with this lipid uh, modifying enzyme, sphingomyelinase which ultimately induces this embryonic lethality. And so that lethality somehow gets aborted or inhibited when the NSM is fully functional, yet the NSM also is incorporated in the immune response, particularly in activating the antibody ligation to the T-cell receptor, okay? And that's how the T-cell receptor functions. So. NSM expression appears essential for the T cell receptor signal amplification and sustaining that at a low antigen dose. And it does so by inducing a protein kinase C zeta isoform dependent microtubule polarization and vesicular transport. So of, of the of the T cell receptor. So T cell polarization and vectorial migration in response to chemotactic signals are dependent on, dependent upon, require the activity of the neutral sphingomyelinase isoform too. So studies in measles virus, for example, contacting T cells and tumor cells even 
does reveal a strong impact of the sphingomyelinase activity and the sphingolipids themselves in general on T-cell cytoskeletal dynamics. So the NSM2 activity on the cytosolic leaflet of the plasma membrane is necessary for T-cell receptor signaling. This is what we can describe. And again, it was published in Frontiers in Cell and Development of Biology uh, in October of 2019. So the mechanism involves, again, this PKC zeta. Since the kinase is the canonical NSM2 downstream effector um, that regulates microtubular polarization, what I just mentioned to you. In fact, the NSM2 depletion also decreases ceramide, because that would be the product of the reaction, and phosphonylcholine, the second product of the reaction. But it, that therefore would be increasing lysophosphatidylcholine and lysophosphatidylethanolamine levels. Okay, at the same time, because of the interact, because of the movement of the phosphorylcholine, right? So TCR-dependent upregulation of required T-cell signaling diacylglycerol, which of course activates PKCs in general, protein kinase Cs in general, is abolished if you have cells deficient in the neutral sphingomyelinase, so in the delta NSM cells. Okay, that's very important. Moreover, NSM2 activity is found to play an important role in plasma membrane cholesterol transport to the ER, so this is retrotransport. And what happens to the ER, of course, is the production of cholesterol esters. And now, depending on what cells or tissues you're talking about, this will lead to transport, for example, uh, of the cholesterol esters out of that cell through lipoprotein metabolism. So cholesterol ester accumulation, of course, is also essential to sustain human T cell proliferation. And therefore, any inhibition of cholesterol ester-generating enzymes, such as the cholesterol acetyltransferase ACAT, either ACAT1 or ACAT2, will impair TCR-driven expansion in both T-cell lineages that are of significance, CD4-positive, CD8-positive. Therefore, dealing with either MHC1 or MHC2-class uh, interactions with antigenic cells. So the neutrospheromyelase 2 is involved in regulating T-cell functions by its multiple effects on plasma membrane lipids and therefore on cholesterol homeostasis. This is the key feature we're talking about here, okay? So again, phosphatidylcholine um, and ceramide will be converted to sphingomyelin and diacylglycerol, right? That, that, that reaction is carried out by sphingomyelin synthase, right? So you get free ceramide coming from membrane sphingomyelin after the sphingomyelinase activity, the neutral sphingomyelinase activity, generating ceramide and phosphorylcholine are, uh, will do the following. Ceramide will actually now react with phosphatidylcholine and convert ceramide back to sphingomyelin. At the same time, phosphatidylcholine is generating diacylglycerol, DAG. DAG then will allosterically activate that protein kinase C zeta isoform, and that 
will then give you TCR-mediated T-cell activation. All right? So you see how this works out. This is all lipid metabolism now ultimately involved in T-cell receptor activation. After all that other discussion I went through with you, I want you to understand with the recombinase, I want you to see how it is fundamentally associated um, with lipid metabolism. And here we're talking specifically about the T-cell receptor. And again, why are we talking about T-cell receptors? Because lymphocytes can infiltrate into the central nervous system in the aging brain. And it's been known for a long time that certain types of T lymphocytes, particularly T memory cells, uh, which have a memory for interacting with certain um, alloantigens, can mo be modified because of epigenetic changes in the T cell receptor or in the T cell signaling phenomenon with pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors to not only work in the alloform, but in the autoform, then for generating autoimmune responses in conjunction with micro, resident microglia in the central nervous system. And it is this autoimmune response, which can be then linked to the A-beta protein. For example, this is only one patho, uh, uh, physiological phenotype I'm talking about here, Alzheimer's disease, the, the A-beta protein, but also with neurofibrillary tangles to generate an immune response in the brain, therefore generating neurodegeneration, which is again, the onset of Alzheimer's disease in the elderly. So you see where this fits together? I'm sure you do. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest on the 24th of April, 2021. I'll get back to you soon. Bye for now.